WAGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved to God as a workman who is not ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So glad you can join us for the next hour. If you are a first time listener, we're taking people's questions as they've been studying God's word. Maybe they've come to a passage. They're not sure what it means or how to apply it. And you're looking for help, or maybe there's a particular issue in your life, your family, your children, your ministry, and you'd like biblical counsel on for the next hour. All you need to do is you can email us or you can um, uh, call us live. The number locally again is 843-525-1859. The toll free number is 877. Uh, the call letters WAGP uh, 7478. So either of those will get you through. And uh, as you uh, call, you can go on the air live or you can simply dictate your question. If you want to email us here directly into the studio, you can do so at TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP dot net. All right, Rick, uh, let's go ahead and we'll jump in with both feet. And by God's grace, we'll try to hit some of these questions. That sounds great, Pastor. Uh, We just had a dictated question. Uh, This person says, if I am abiding in God and his word is abiding in me, John 15, 7. Right. Will the Holy Spirit pray through me and burden me to pray according to God's will so then I can claim the promise of 1 John 5, 14? Well, 1 John 5, of course, says if we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we have asked, then we know that we have the requests that we've asked from him. So it's a promise that definitively teaches that when you pray something that you know to be the will of God, then in absolute faith, you can claim it. Now, there are obviously a lot of issues that we're not sure are the will of God. And you mentioned an interesting passage of scripture in John 15. Of course, Jesus at the end of um, uh, 14, he says, get up, let us go from here. Where are they? They're in the upper room. And they're on their way to the Mount of Olives there at the uh, specifically to the Garden of Gethsemane. And between those two points, they walk through a vineyard. And as they walk through the vineyard, Jesus uses this illustration that he's the vine and we're branches and that we must abide in him. And he makes an incredible promise here in verse seven. If you abide in me and my words (coughs) abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So it's a conditional promise. Uh, We have to abide in him. That means that we have a clean, clear heart before the Lord. We talk about a Christian who is spirit filled. Every born again Christian is spirit and dwelt. So the baptism of the spirit is something that's assumed of all believers in the New Testament. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, for we have all been baptized by one spirit. That assumption is true of every Christian. And when you think too about 
the people that he writes that promise to. Uh, they're one of the most carnal, inconsistent, uh, babyfied churches in all the New Testament. Of course, he's already called them saints by calling, but he reminds them that they've had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so that's just a, a fact. First Corinthians twelve thirteen. for by one spirit, we're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we're all made to drink of one spirit. So people today talk about getting the baptism of the Holy Spirit. My friend, you've had it if you've been saved. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was futuristic prior to Pentecost. And so Jesus spoke of it in those terms. John baptized with water, but I will baptize you. Or John says, one is coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. And indeed, that's what Jesus does. He baptizes in the Spirit and someday he will baptize with a judgment of fire. And both are true as the context uh, brings out in Jesus that John the Baptist made that promise. But Jesus likewise made very similar statements in Acts chapter one or the final verses of Luke chapter 24. So we're never commanded on this side of Pentecost to be baptized with the spirit. When you hear the message of truth, the gospel, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise and you can't be unsealed. You're sealed for or onto the day of redemption. It's a done deal. Uh, the Holy Spirit is God's down payment, his earnest, his um, proof that what he started, he is going to finish. But while we are not commanded to be baptized, we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. And that's really what Jesus is dealing with here in John 15 of our need to abide in him. Like we need air to live. We need him to live through us. But it's a dual promise because the Holy Spirit does not work in a vacuum. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now it is true that sometimes we don't know how to pray as we ought, but if we're spirit filled and his word is abiding in us, you see, sometimes Christians ask for foolish things and they don't really know what they're asking for. Sometimes children ask their parents for something that they think they want, they really need, but their parents in wisdom know it will be harmful to them or it won't help them in terms of their development. Our heavenly father is the perfect parent and he knows all about us. And so sometimes uh, we just don't know how to pray as we ought. We were speaking last Sunday in the message from the revelation that God's delays are not always his denials. Sometimes God delays because as James teaches, we ask amiss, we ask with wrong motives. We don't really know what we're asking for. And so God says no, or sometimes um, it takes time to see the answer to our prayer because God uses a natural means to accomplish it. You know, we say, Lord, help me to lose this weight. Well, okay. It's not, you're not going to wake up in 10 seconds and you've lost 50 pounds. There's a process that you go through. Lord, please lower my cholesterol. Okay. Well, there's a process you go through. So sometimes prayer takes time to see the answer that God uses natural means to accomplish. Uh, sometimes we ask and our heart is not right. And so if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord does not hear. But that doesn't mean if I'm abiding in him and my word abides in, in he abides in me and his word abides in me that I automatically always know the will of God. Some things I do, some things I don't have to wonder about because God gives a clear, specific promise that I can cling to, hold to. I know this is the will of God for my life. But sometimes we don't always know. 
And again, if we're spirit filled as Romans eight teaches, the spirit intercedes for us when we don't know how to pray as we ought. And, and very often, of course, someone who is abiding in the spirit and the word of God is abiding in them because they've matured some, because remember this, this promise can be true of someone who's been a believer six months. It can be true of a believer who's been a Christian 60 years. And so the degrees are different. Now the same Holy spirit who works in the 60 year old believer works in the Christian who's been saved for six days. But the um, degree to which the word of God abides in that heart are, are going to be vastly different. And that doesn't mean that the most mature believer in the world still always knows the will of God, but they're quick to acknowledge, Lord, I don't really know what your will is. I want to do your will. That's my heart. I want to abide in you. I want to obey you in every respect, but I'm not sure what your will is at this point. So please, please help me. And even when we don't know how to pray, the spirit intercedes for us. So again, you don't always know definitively in every instance what God's will is for your life. But if you are an abiding Christian, you're going to want his will. And God in that respect is going to answer that question for you. That's a great question. Very practical. It's where we live every day. Thanks so much for asking it. Let's go to the next one. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning. Uh, reading today in, in Hebrews, uh, specifically Hebrews 4.15, where it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. I, I found it interesting that, it's, you know, and I, and I know it's true that our Lord sympathizes with us, but it's just an interesting way, way of saying that, that how he has sympathy for us as sinners. I'd I just like your comment on that. Well, it's a, it's a great observation that you, you make. And of course, remember the flow of the book of Hebrews. You have Jewish Christians who have gone back to temple worship and they might have found justification for this. Maybe they saw the apostles where, you know, the third hour of prayer one day after Pentecost, they go to the temple to pray and they might say, well, look, the apostles were still initially involved in the temple but they weren't involved in the temple sacrifices. But as Christianity progressed, if you were a Jewish Christian, it meant persecution. It meant having your business ostracized. It meant losing your friends. And so some of them, in order to avoid that persecution, went back and outwardly they were being engaged in the temple worship system. And in the process, uh, they were escaping some of the persecution. But they were also denying in some respects what Jesus had accomplished and what he had fulfilled. And so as the uh, writer of the Hebrews describes it, they were worshiping in a type uh, picture of a reality that Jesus fulfilled. So one of the things that he does like in this section in three and four and five and uh, all the way through seven is he's comparing the old Testament priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood with the priesthood of the Lord Jesus and Christ is not a priest according to the line of Aaron, but a unique priesthood. The Melchizedekian priesthood is the seventh chapter underscores. So he says in 14 of chapter four, therefore, um, we since we have a great high priest, of course, whenever you uh, 
you ask the word therefore, you want to ask what it is it there for. Well, he, he, it goes back to the beginning of chapter four, where again, you had believers who were not entering the rest that God gave internally. And they were bypassing that through some of their disobedience. And so he says, we're to be diligent to enter that rest so that no one through the same example of disobedience that he just illustrated with the Jews at Kadesh Barnea, who had been given a promise by God to enter the promised land. And Moses sends in the spies not to see if they can take the land, but how they are going to take the land. But 10 come back. The majority report is listened to. They're like giants and we're but grasshoppers in their sights. And people go with the majority report. Well, Moses is told by God they're not going to go in. And the next day they're all sad and they're crying and they're repenting. And they were saying, God, beg us. We beg you. And God says, no, you're not going in. Because of your unbelief, you failed to enter the rest that I had for you in the promised land. Well, they tried anyway, and of course, it's disastrous. And so he says, therefore, we're to be diligent to enter that rest so that we won't fall through the same example of disobedience. And then he says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Uh, he's reminding us that God's word is alive. That word that was alive, they should have listened to because it pierced their heart as being true. Um, but they denied it anyway. We can't go into the land. And so he says, there's no creature hidden from the power of God's word. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. The confession that they made at their baptism that Jesus is Lord for we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. He understands it. Why? Because he physically took on our humanity and he proved to us that he understood it. Now, did God have to take on our humanity to understand our weaknesses? No, God's omniscient. But he demonstrated by taking on our humanity that he completely understands our weaknesses. In fact, in his humanity, he was tempted in all things as we are, yet he was without sin. And so what are we to do? We're to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that's what these Jewish believers needed to do. Uh, they needed to say, forget the persecution. We have a high priest who understands our persecution and what we're going through. Uh, Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. And so he completely understands. I mean, think of it as Peter reminds us when he uses a very s similar statement about Jesus being sinless. I mean, if there was ever someone who's ever walked on planet Earth who should have absolutely no one ever opposing him, it would have been the Lord Jesus. It's not like you could come up with some reason and say, well, you know, he was really insensitive to me or he was this way or he was that way towards me. No, uh, he was absolutely perfect for you have been called for this purpose the need to suffer unjustly like Jesus did as the context draws out since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow his steps. And again, that's really what the writer of the Hebrews is reminding these folks. They're trying to escape persecution. And he reminds them, look, you don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with you. He was persecuted. Um, so you need to go to him and think about this. You've been called to follow his steps who Jesus committed no sin nor was any deceit ever found in his mouth. 
And yet, while being reviled or insulted, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to God. So here is Jesus, the perfect person, never even had a bad word out of his mouth. And what did they do with him? They slung him up on a cross. And so then he applies it to us in the same way. Uh, We are to, again, follow that example. So good question. Appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and uh, somebody followed up on that original question about the abiding in the word and and then uh, claiming the promises of 1 John 5.14, they wanted to know what your opinion is of fleecing the Lord. Well, again, you know, um, let's go back to this concept of abiding in the Lord. Sometimes we don't always know the will of God. For instance, I had recently had someone ask me this question. They said, I know I, the God of Israel, hate divorce, so I know it's not God's will for people to be divorced, and my wife wants to divorce me, so can I claim first John five fourteen as as I pray God for us not to get a divorce? Can I believe God for that? And I said, No. He said, Why not? I said, Because marriage is a two sided response. Now that doesn't mean that you shouldn't pray for God to heal your marriage, because that would be a prayer within the will of God, because God hates divorce. But there's two people involved in terms of the answer to the prayer. And God can certainly superintend circumstances and other issues on your wife's heart to change her. But there's still two people involved and God doesn't violate in the end our free will. Um, So understand when Gideon put the fleece out there, so to speak, it was pre-Pentecost. It was at a time in human history where um, he had very little of the word of God. Remember, he lives during the time of the judges and the book of judges is not written until after the period of the judges is over. And so um, what did he have at that point in human history? Basically, he had the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So it was very limited revelation. And God in the Old Testament, the writer of the Hebrews reminds us of this truth. But remember, we're living in a different age. Um, It tells us that in Hebrews chapter two um, or Hebrews chapter one, he says that God has spoken uh, in long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed Um, heir of all things and the one who made the world. So there was a time in human history when God spoke in many portions and in many ways. Uh, That time is over because now we have a completed canon of scripture. And so Gideon didn't have that. And so his um, need to put a fleece on the ground was, I think, legitimate and God honored it. I think in some ways and in many respects today, it might represent almost the opposite of faith. Because now we have not just even a portion of scripture, we have the whole of scripture and we have a completed revelation from God. That is not to say that God cannot be confirmatory through circumstances. He can't. Sometimes, again, you don't know the will of God and you say, Heavenly Father, I, I want you to uh, guide me and direct me and give me confirmation. The Bible says a man plans his ways, but God directs his steps. But understand, he was looking principally for communication and direction through the fleece. And that's where I think the error would be in our day. 
It's not that God can't confirm through circumstances, but we need to be looking first and principally to the word of God and to the full counsel of scripture that God has revealed. And then in light of that, if we don't have a clear verse, chapter and so forth, then then you might look to the Lord to, to give you direction. And he certainly can. But remember, God's will never contradicts his word. And whatever he shows you, if it's his will, it will not contradict the word of God. So anyway, I appreciate that. Let's go on to the next question. All right. And, uh, I, and by the way, I have a sermon that might be helpful to this person because I've kind of given you a, a short answer. But if you go to my series on the book of Acts and... Um, Let's see, I think I divided it um, from, yes, uh, I think Acts 1, 12 through 26 is I think the way I would have um, divided that section of scripture. And I basically deal with the disciples in the upper room. Remember, it's still pre-Pentecost. They draw lots. But I go through in that whole sermon, how do you find God's will for your life? And I go through some of these issues that were some uniquely Old Testament and some that are New Covenant. So that sermon might be a big help to you. All right, now let's go on. Well, you had a a listener who has emailed us their question. It uh, says, in Exodus 4, Moses told the Lord that he, Moses, was not eloquent. But in Acts 7, 22, Moses is said to be educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. How do we explain these two passages which seem to contradict one another? Well, people love to attack Moses and, you know, they're, they're always hitting him on something in terms of they think is contradictory or inconsistent. And there are no obviously inconsistencies in the word of God. Jesus told the Pharisees on one day, the scripture cannot be broken. His arguments, every word cannot be broken. It is foolproof. And just because we don't necessarily understand how we might deal with so a so-called alleged contradiction. And by the way, I have a course on bibliology and I deal with alleged contradictions in the Bible. I don't deal with all of them, but I deal with a whole bunch of them. I can't remember if I dealt with this one, but the, this is one of the big ones in Exodus, this and, you know, livestock, dead stock and, you know, some of those issues later on, but uh, there's no contradiction. Remember the context, Moses for 40 years, his life, by the way, is divi- divided into three forties, 40, 40, 40. Uh, he's raised for 40 years in Egypt. Then the next 40 years, he's in the wilderness. In the final 40 years, he's used by God to deliver the Jewish people. And he spends that time with them wandering in the wilderness until he dies there on top of Mount Nebo. And so the first 40 had just finished and God meets him at this burning bush where God commissions him to be his servant in order to deliver the people. And Moses in four one says, well, what if they will not believe me or listen to me? And uh, they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. And the Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? He said, a staff. Then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. And so he stretched out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord Yahweh, it's all caps in the NASB, uh, giving us the covenant name for God that that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. 
The Lord furthermore said to him, now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then he said, put your hand uh, into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again. And when he took out, uh, took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. By the way, God practices what he preaches. Uh, He will later reveal to Moses as he writes in Torah that everything is to be confirmed on the basis of two or three witnesses. But if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it in the dry ground and the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Then Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in times past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth or who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And of course, um, at one point, God gets upset. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. He's coming up with these excuses. Now, the question at hand is uh, an occasion in Acts 7 when uh, Stephen is uh, accosted by some men. Uh, Their robes are laid, if you remember, at the feet of the Apostle Paul. And he gives one of the most powerful sermons recorded in the Word of God. In fact, I often tell people, if you're trying to get the big picture of the Old Testament, read and study Acts chapter 7, because he highlights all the major events of the Old Testament. I have a whole message on this in our series on Acts that might be helpful to some listener today. And of course, uh, in that sermon, he brings up Moses. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. So there's several ways to reconcile these two passages. Really, I think the simplest way is just to take it from the immediate context. At what point is Stephen describing Moses as a man who is a man of power in words and deed when he's living in that 40 year segment in Egypt? Remember, he's the one who is uh, brought up in an Egyptian home and educated under the best tutors. He is in the home of the most powerful man alive on the planet at that time in human history. And so it could be said of Moses at this point in his life that he was a man of power in words and deeds. Now, remember what happened. He, uh, in the process, murders an Egyptian. He's scared for his life. He flees. He's 80 years old when God now appears to him at the burning bush. And God is asking him to go back to Egypt And so God himself never says of Moses that you're not a man who's eloquent. In fact, um, Moses stated, um, I think quite eloquently, his case for being ineloquent. Um, So clearly God doesn't say that about Moses. Moses says that about himself. And God wants to assure him. I mean, why is he saying this? Because he's scared. You want me to go back there, the place I fled from, where I think they're going to take my life for killing an Egyptian? No way. I don't want to do that. And so when Stephen is recounting Moses' life, he's doing it at 
the first 40-year segment. But let's just say for the sake of argument that um, Moses' assessment of himself is true. Would that contradict Acts 7.22? Not at all. He's a man of power in words and deeds. He was powerful in his deeds. Nobody can debate that because of the miracles he did. Who else has split a Red Sea? And you could still say that he's powerful in his words. In what respect? He gave us the Torah. He gave us the written word of God. And so he was indeed powerful in his words and his deeds. But I think contextually, he's really describing Moses at a segment in his life that was pre-burning bush. And now Moses is at 80, is scared spitless. And remember, this is Moses' assessment of himself and not God's assessment of Moses. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right. Our next caller uh, just would like to know if you've ever heard about William Branham. And if so, what do you think of him? I think he was a nut, uh, to put it mildly. And occasionally his name comes up. He was a part of the Latter Rains movement. His theology is abhorrent. He was just a wacko, oneness Pentecostal who had revelations from God, who denied all kinds of historical Orthodox doctrine. I sure hope he repented and got his life right and that we'll meet him in heaven. Uh, But from all the writings I've read of him, He was an unbeliever twisting and manipulating the word of God, and he's not someone you'd want to follow. Very good. Uh, Neil from San Padre, Texas writes, in Matthew 5, uh, verses 1 through 32, Jesus seems to be preaching a sermon to America on abortion to pro-lifers, abortionists, and pro-choicers. Have you ever heard anyone preach it in that context? Well, no. And again, it's always a good rule of thumb to first and foremost ask, what did it mean to the original audience? And when you understand what a text meant to the original audience, then and only then can you make proper application into which the day that we live in. And so Jesus is at a place um, on the top of a hill. I've been to that spot. It's a beautiful spot. Uh, As he moves up the hill from the Sea of Galilee, We're taking a group there, God willing, in just a few months to Israel, and we'll go to this very spot where the Sermon on the Mount is uh, preached. It's found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And of course, the way the winds blow, too, even if there were several thousand people there, his voice would have carried uh, the way the geography is of that piece of property where all would have heard him well, and he would not have even had to have worked hard though there were certainly people like Whitfield who would preach to groups of 30,000 people without a microphone. Um, In either case, he is preaching to kind of a mixed audience. He's dealing with disciples who are not disciples in the sense that they are converts, but they are learners. The word mafetes in the Greek New Testament that we translate disciple just means a learner. And sometimes it's used of an unbeliever and that someone is learning and there's some good examples of that, for instance, in Acts, I mean, in John chapter eight, where you have uh, disciples who are following Christ, but they're not yet believers in Christ. And also in John six, when he gives the bread of life discourse. 
but then there's genuine disciples or converts and it's used in that sense for instance in the great commission go therefore and make disciples Um, people think that says make do discipleship that's not what it says in fact the word discipleship never appears in the new testament now certainly the concept of nurturing believers does and how discipleship takes place is a whole nother question but the uh, great commission and as you appear uh, compare it with other accounts because it's given five times in the new testament go into all the world and preach the gospel everyone under creation mark writes you can put them all together that the focus is evangelistic as you go, not go Therefore, This is not like some missionary verse, go to Africa, go to Germany, go to Pakistan, go to India. No, it's, it's a participle. It's a present active participle as you are going, as you're going where, as you're going everywhere you go, do what? Make disciples, make converts. How do you do that? There's only one way through sharing Jesus Christ with people. So that's what we're supposed to do as believers. We're to make disciples. The reason I underscore this is because we live in a day where people hide behind discipleship and they got their nice little Bible studies they go to and they say, well, we're discipling people and we're doing what Jesus said. In reality, most of them are not. They're just having a nice little Bible study, but they're not being engaged outwardly and trying to reach a lost world and bring people to the savior. And that's what the major thrust is. And really there's no discipleship that is effective in that illustrates the biblical pattern that Jesus gave. If it's not also evangelistic, Uh, if we are leading Bible studies and we're trying to disciple people, we're not teaching them to do the work of an evangelist then we're doing a crummy job in discipling people. And really, we're not seeing God's word work in their hearts the way it potentially could um, had they not been taught to share their faith. Because it's only in the context of sharing your faith and trying to reach people for Christ that you see the fresh work of the Holy Spirit. So he's dealing with this mixed multitude, and some are believers and some are not. And really, the key to the whole sermon, I suppose, is this he says in 517 do not think that i came to abolish the law of the prophets i did not come to abolish but to fulfill for truly i say to you till heaven and earth pass away not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And so what Jesus is doing in the sermon is he's comparing two kinds of righteousness, the righteousness of the Pharisees. You say, well, man, they were holy men. They went to the temple every day on three different occasions and prayed for an hour Three times every day they went to quote unquote church. They fasted one day a week. They tithed everything. I mean, right down, Jesus said to the spices in their garden. So if they had a little mint bush and it produced 10 leaves, they'd give one to God. Oh, they were holy men. And Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And so Jesus shows kingdom righteousness, the kind of righteousness his people should express, which has direct application for all the believers who are present. Um, But it also has a huge application for those people who are lost because they begin to understand that their righteousness falls short of the glory of God. 
And so some guy says, well, I've never committed adultery. And Jesus said, if you've lusted in your heart towards a woman, you've committed adultery. I've never committed murder. Well, have you ever been angry and hated your brother? Then you're a murderer in your heart. And so Jesus shows a whole different kind of righteousness. So to answer your question specifically to say, well, this sermon is about abortion or whatever. No, it's not about abortion. It's about uh, man's righteousness versus God's righteousness. Now, that's not to say that you couldn't make some application, modern application, but you always want to ask, well, who's the audience? What's the context? How would someone in the first century have understood this? And so when you first ask, what does it mean to the original audience? When Paul says a woman should have her head covered in church, when Jesus said we ought to wash one another's feet, what did that mean to the original audience? I don't see in many churches women with their head covered, and I certainly don't see people washing each other's feet. So what does it mean to the original audience? And when I can make that uh, proper first century interpretation, then I can make application to my life today. Now, there are many passages, obviously, that affirm that life begins at the moment of conception. That's not the thrust of this sermon. So if I wanted to preach a sermon to protect the sanctity of human life, and by the way, you're listening to me today. Uh, There are five senators, even one here in Beaufort, that are opposing the um, Dismemberment Act. It's an act in the South Carolina Senate that basically says that babies 20 weeks and above should not be aborted and torn apart piece by piece from their mother's womb. And there are five senators, even the one here in Beaufort, that are opposing that bill. We have an excellent chance of passing this bill. So you need to be aware of who your senator is. Um, You can go online, get your state senator, and you ought to call them, even if they're pro-life in this realm. And this is one of those issues that, in a lot of ways, has gone across both aisles, where even a Democrat, who are typically pro-abortion and anti-life, all in the name of women's life, murdering little babies, and there are Republicans like that, like our Republican senator here in Beaufort, Uh, They need to hear from you because our governor said he would sign this bill. He spoke to a group of us in his house up there in Columbia, and he promised us that he is going to sign this bill into law if it will pass. And so this is an opportunity that many have been praying for for over a decade in this state. And And it could be really instrumental in going through the legal system and ultimately overturning Roe v. Wade. We have over 60 million Americans who are missing. They're gone. They've been exterminated. And uh, it's a tragedy of tragedy of tragedies. So, but if I wanted to preach a sermon on abortion, I would go to other passages that more, that directly address the fact that life begins at the moment of conception. All right, let's go to the uh, next text. All right, Jamie from Seattle, Washington writes, I just read an interesting article by Michael Zwiegel, what child is this, which asserts that John Nelson Darby used Revelation 12:5 as an exegetical support for the rapture? But currently, that reference has been ignored by more modern rapture advocates. What are your thoughts on the church, those in Christ, his body, being included in the caught up of Revelation 12:5, 5, 
And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Thank you very much for your teaching. Well, let me first say I respect Darby in a lot of ways because uh, he was trying to interact with the scriptures, applying the same principle on how to read and interpret the scriptures, which is what we call a literal or plain hermeneutic by by literally interpreting the scriptures. And very often you'll see someone interviewed, well, do you literally believe the Bible? And they say, well, yes. And oh, well, you know, that's why you're so nuts. And that's why you're against homosexuality or whatever. And well, do you literally believe my words when I tell you that I think it's wrong to murder someone? Well, well, yeah. Well, well, why do you literally believe it? And so, you know, language was given to communicate. And so technically we don't believe in a literal interpretation, but a historical, grammatical, plain interpretation of the Bible. That might be a better way to express it because we recognize there are metaphors and symbols in the word of God. And um, we need to understand what the symbol means. When Jesus said, I am the door, he didn't mean he was a, you know, four by six door. I'm, a, I'm the bread of life. He didn't mean he was a loaf of bread. And so we need to understand the symbol. Um, and once we understand the symbol, though, we should literally believe it with all of our hearts. With that said, Darby, while I agree with him on a whole lot, um, and while I appreciate that in trying to apply the scriptures and interpret the scriptures, he saw the unconditional nature of the covenant that God made with the people of Israel. And so he made a distinction between Israel and the church. And so I deeply respect him for that. I think he came to some conclusions in terms of fragmenting the Bible in places that I think were in error. Now, when you come to Revelation 12, and by the way, I'm preaching through the book of Revelation, and I, we have a lot of people in Washington State who listen to us every week, and, um, and we're so glad for that. And I don't know how there's such a contingency of people in Washington State. Maybe they're here at one time, but they have found us, and they live stream and so forth. But I'm coming to Revelation 12. I'm not there yet. I just finished chapter 9, and I think I'm probably about six or seven, maybe eight sermons away from this passage. But again, I don't think contextually this is a reference to the rapture of the church. And she gave birth to a son. Now in uh, this section of the revelation, remember the architect, uh, the architecture of the revelation is really important. And if you don't see the structure, it can become confusing. When you come to chapter six, all the way through the 18th chapter and the 19th chapter, the second coming happens Well, in chapter four, the rapture takes place. And so you see the church in heaven raptured, signified there by the 24 elders. And in chapter six, after the lamb, Jesus is given the scroll and he begins to unseal each of the seven seal judgments from chapter six through 18. There's a series of 21 judgments that come in the form of seal, trumpet, and bold judgments. And when you look at those three sets of seven, it's important you understand the structure. In each case, there's six, there's a pause, there's a seventh. So you have six seals. There's a pause, which would be the first six seals, if you remember, they are unfolded in chapter six. First, the four horsemen of the apocalypse and the fifth seal where you see all these people who are martyred for their faith. These are tribulation saints. Then you see the sixth seal where there's some 
things going up in the skies, and then you come to a pause, and that's chapter 7. And in this interlude, as it were, we see God helping us to see what was going on during this time in another realm amongst specifically in chapter seven, his people. And so there's 144,000 Jewish people who are saved and sealed and protected by God. And they preach the gospel to the whole world. Then the seventh seal is opened. And in the seventh seal are seven trumpets. Just like in the seventh trumpet, there are seven bowls. So in the seventh seal, there are seven trumpets. And first you have six trumpets. And we just finished um, chapter uh, eight and chapter um, nine. So we went through the first six trumpets. And then there's a pause again. And the pause comes in chapters 10 through 14. In chapters 10 through 14, we're introduced to seven major personalities who are at play during the tribulation. First, in chapters 10 and 11, he tells us about the angel and his little book and then the two witnesses and, and then the seventh angel sounded the trumpet and the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And you think, well, it's all over now. Here comes Jesus. And then it goes on for some more chapters. But when the seventh angel sounds the seventh trumpet, it's, it, it, for all practical purposes, all are able to see, well, here come the bold judgments. And that's going to bring in the Jesus back to the earth. And, but he gives us a double parenthesis here in chapters 12 and 13, and uh, where he introduces us to these seven personalities. And they're each symbolized. Remember in the opening verse of the revelation, uh, when you uh, read the introduction, uh, there's a very important word that we find here. It says here uh, in revelation one, let me just start in verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not the revelation of John, by the way, this is the revelation to John, you could say, but some old edition said the revelation of John. No, it's not John's revelation. It's Jesus Christ's revelation. Remember the chapter titles aren't inspired. They were added there uh, just to help us find our way around various books, maybe to label the outside of a scroll uh, as people in the early church. Let's see, which one's revelation? Oh, here it is. It's written on the outside. And at some point, some publisher said the revelation of John uh, and some say the revelation of John, the diviner, some old one translation, one publisher, of the King James, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. The father gave Jesus this revelation. And I explain what that means to show his bond service. That's us, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it. Now, if you have the New American Standard, you will notice there's a footnote in front of communicated. He's signified it. The word signified, he's signified it. So he's saying that this revelation that the Father gave to Jesus as the ruler and heir of this world, who's going to enact the revelation, uh, he's going to oversee what we're reading here in terms of these 21 judgments, starting with the seals as he opens them and in the Again, the seventh seal, because he opens it, there's seven trumpets, and in the seventh trumpet, there are seven bowls. So in that sense, he's been given it. But he, he signifies it to his bondservants. 
That means there's a lot of signs. Now, many of the signs in the revelation are interpreted within revelation itself. Um, so that's important. And so we, we read in this chapter of, you know, seven golden lampstands and we discover, oh, the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. And so we're, we're, each, each of the signs are many times interpreted for us. One of the challenges with Revelation, especially in our day, because people lack a knowledge of the Old Testament, of the 404 verses, about 300 of them are references to the Old Testament. Now you'll read some commentators will say 600 or 800 or, well, they're double counting, but in terms of unique said wants, um, there are over 300 references to the Old Testament. And so if you don't know what that Old Testament passage is and the challenge in Revelation, it doesn't say, well, Daniel says, or Isaiah the prophet said, and where the Old Testament reference is introduced to us, like in other books of the Bible. If he did that, I suppose Revelation wouldn't be 22 chapters, but much longer. So you have to go back and study that. So when you come to the 12th chapter, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child and she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. Now, doesn't that sound a little bit familiar of someone once who had a dream of the sun and the moon and 12 stars. Oh yeah, that's Joseph. And of course, remember God said that through Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And Abraham has Isaac, the son of promise, and he has Jacob and he has 12 sons. And, and Israel gives us the child. The child here is in reference to Christ. And so when you come to verse five and she gave birth to a son, a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, that's Jesus. That's the Messiah and her child was caught up to God, to his throne. This is a reference to the ascension. This is not a reference to the church being caught up. It is true that the word caught up harpazo uh, that's used in first Thessalonians four. Someone say, well, it means to be snatched up. Not always just mean to be caught up. And so they try to make this a reference to the rapture because they want the rapture to be true. Well, the rapture is true, but I don't think this verse is teaching that. So wait till I get to revelation four and I'm sure I'll deal with that and expound it in great detail and give you a more detailed answer. But this is Jesus being caught up and we'll talk about why is it significant that he even mentions that now. And, but that's a whole nother sermon. And all right, let's keep going. All right. Can you talk about dispensationalism in five minutes? I suppose I can. All right. What's the question? Uh, I understand that you teach dispensationalism, writes Roger from Bluffton. What particular brand of dispensationalism do you adhere to? Classic, progressive, or something else? Well, I wouldn't say I teach dispensationalism. I would say I teach the Bible. Um, what is a dispensationalist? Well, the word, the Greek word, refers to different economies. And in one sense, in the broadest sense, any Christian reformed, whatever stripe they put on their theology, recognize that there are different economies in which God has worked you know, before the fall, after the fall, uh, during the time of the law, the cross, um, the whole issue of dispensationalism uh, today, when we use the term in its simplest fashion is we are saying there's a distinction between Israel and the church, that the church has not supplanted Israel. Why do we know that? Because of the covenant that God made with the people of Israel 
specifically with Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis. Remember on that occasion when God cut a covenant and uh, in, in that day, in Abraham's day, when you wanted to make some serious deal, not just a kind of handshake thing, but I mean a serious agreement between two people is you would take some animals and you would cut them in half and then one party who is in agreement with the deal you're making would walk through and then the other person would walk through and they were basically saying, may God do to me, kill me if I don't keep my promise that I've made to you. And so there comes a time in Abraham's life when God makes a covenant with Abraham, but it's a unilateral covenant. And so God cuts the animals and, um, then he puts Abraham to sleep and Abraham has a vision and God walks between the animals. And so the covenant, the promise that God made, and I dealt with this in our series in revelation, you might want to listen to it was a unilateral covenant. You can read about it in Genesis 15. Now, when the sun was going down and a deep sleep fell upon Abram, later Abraham and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. And God, of course, did just that. They were in Egypt and oppressed for 400 years. They were there 430 years, but under oppression for 400. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, namely Egypt, and they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you will be buried at a good old age. And indeed he was 175. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite has not yet been complete. So God is um, patient towards the Amorite. He's waiting for them to repent. It came about when the sun had set, it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch would pass through. And anyway, God walks through. He makes a unal lateral covenant and it's a forever covenant that God makes with the people of Israel. So John Calvin comes out of Catholicism and Catholicism comes out of Augustinian theology and Augustinian theology comes out of origins theology and origin didn't want to talk about another person being king and ruling on the earth because it probably would have cost him his life in the day he preached. So he spiritualized some of the scripture and he ultimately uh, made the church the new Israel and Augustine did that and Catholics did it and reformers like Calvin just put a different spin on it, but God's not done with Israel. So I didn't come to dispensational theology because just some dispensationalist taught me. I came to dispensational theology that there's a distinction between Israel and the church because the scriptures teach that the plain reading of the word of God teaches that. So Calvin you know, and others, you know, said all, everything in Revelation has already been fulfilled except the second coming. Man, you just got to butcher and twist the scriptures to make that true. Anyway, if you want to ask some follow-ups, I'll be happy to discuss it another day. But we're out of time for this day. Thanks for being with us on the Bible line. Walk with Jesus and honor him.